enough funds to finish it, lest he be a laughingstock to the neighborhood. Right? It's like building a, a half a slab of a home and starting half a house and leaving the other part done, undone, because you ran out of money. Bad planning. And he uses another illustration. What, what king will first go, will go to war without first counting the number of troops he has versus the number of troops of the warring king coming against him? And the point he's making is, it's foolish to, to put anything or anybody else above God or to think that my relationship with God is, is based on my own righteousness or my own position or my own personal, political, or pedigree, my own status with God. He's preaching to the Jews. And here we have in Genesis a story of the final Jew, as it were, the final one who gets the trifecta blessing, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, as we've been walking through the narrative of Jacob's story, it's been really rough. We've seen a lot of, of difficulty and hurtful things. Jacob himself started his journey uh, in a household, to be sure, of a lot of personal abuse, no doubt. He knows his father favors his brother. His mother favors him. There's favoritism in the family. Things aren't working well in the household. And so we find in the narrative of Jacob, we find uh, as the narrative opens up, Jacob is the blessed one. He's the promised one. He's a twin. He's born second, but he's going to be the, the, the one who, to, who is to receive the blessing. Rebekah was told so at the very beginning from the angel of the Lord. And instead of keeping that in her heart and taking that to the Lord, she, she works in her own machinations in a way to get her, her son to be blessed by her husband. Instead of uh, coming to her husband and making an appeal and, and leaving her husband in the righteous hand of God's judgment, she attempts to, to manipulate her husband. Jacob, of course, uh, was, was a pawn in this, but also a participant. But Isaac was the one who should have stepped up and said, Hi, I recognize that this promise from the angel of the Lord is a promise that I need to heed. I should be blessing my son Jacob instead of Esau because Jacob is the one who is going to be the, the recipient of the seed. And so what we were going to find, though, as we see Jacob leaving with nothing and coming back with everything, we're going to find, as the story progresses, we're going to find our, our hero, as it were, in a place, and if we're not careful, we're going to miss the big picture and the big problem or the big application for us today. And so let me jump to a, a slide ahead, and then I'll back up. Ultimately, we find God's grace in Jacob's life because God's grace was resolute. God's been pursuing Jacob, hasn't he? In his home where there was favoritism, God continued to bless Jacob. God blessed him with a keen mind and ingenuity. God blessed him with, uh, with, with protection and safety as he leaves for Padanaram and he goes to uh, his extended relative's home to look for a wife. He find, we found parallelism between Abraham's unnamed servant showing up to a well and finding Rebecca for Isaac, to Jacob showing up to a well and finding Leah, or Rachel, excuse me, 
He ends up getting Leah, but he finds Rachel. So God's blessing and his grace, God is resolute in giving his grace to his chosen people. He was the chosen son through which the seed to crush the serpent's head would come. God's resolute grace followed Jacob into exile through 20 years of exile and back to reconcile with his brother Esau. In fact, that's where we left off last time, was discussing what it, what it means to reconcile, to do the hard thing and reconcile with people who have hurt us and people who we've hurt. When he left hearth and home, he had nothing but the clothes on his back. And he returned an extremely wealthy man with wives who bore him 11 children, flocks and herds and servants, or 11 sons, I should say. Uh, we find the 12th son born in the narrative today. And of course, he had a daughter, so 13 children. And we noted that God's sanctification requires us to trust our faithful father. So God was working in Jacob to build trust in his life, that he would learn to trust God's faithfulness despite the circumstances, despite the conniving of Laban, despite the way Laban changed his wages and surprised him with Leah on his wedding night instead of Rachel, and then made him work another seven years for Rachel. And then he worked for 20 years, changing his wages 10 times. Despite all of that, God is faithful, and God challenged Jacob to trust him. We also noted as we walk through the discussion of chapters 32 and 33 that our kernelized application was this. If you truly trust God's sanctifying grace, then you must obey your faithful father. So obedience is a hallmark of trust. When we really trust God's sanctifying grace in our lives, we will obey what he says. And that's kind of where the story leaves off. But when we read the rest of the story we find something really fascinating. And, and we see the facts of the text remind us of something that I think is very, very important. So in order to fully appreciate God's resolute grace, we need to circle back to the full picture of Jacob's life pattern. Because we're going to cover a vast amount of territory today, we're going to go from Genesis 32 to Genesis 37. I'm not going to read it. I asked you two weeks ago to read through the story. I hope you've read through it. I am going to hit the highlights. There will be portions I read. And I, I, we just can't read that much today. But as we circle back to the full picture of Jacob's life pattern, we'll find that Jacob has been a man under God's chastening. We'll find his restored restoration with his big-hearted brother in chapter 33, taking the pressure off of him. In fact, the whole lead-in to chapter 33 is a big lead-in. Jacob is anxious about it. He's, he's super anxious to the point where he gathers his family into groups and he, and he sends his servants with, with groups of animals as gifts over and over and over again to sort of soften the blow. Uh, and he doesn't know whether God is going to save him. And he comes to this sort of soaring, towering prayer in Genesis 32 verses 9 to 12. And it's a wonderful prayer. We find him finding victory and trusting his father and saying, Lord, thank you for, for promising to bless me. And if you'll rescue me from my brother and you'll help me be restored and reconciled, then I will obey you. And God uh, there uh, tells him, you need to return to Bethel, where I blessed you, where you met me, where you, where you dreamt of me and the ladder and the angels going up and down in heaven. But what happens is when he reconciles, and there, indeed he gets a victory with Esau, right? He reconciles with Esau. They're restored to fellowship. 
but the pressure's off. Jacob seems to be a man who's comfortable with his halfway obedience and even justifies it. There's an important lesson that we will see as we wrap up our study of Jacob's life. Now, I don't think it ends there. Obviously, Jacob's end uh, isn't until chapter 49 of Genesis. Jacob doesn't come off the scene, but God is going to highlight in chapters 39 and following, starting in 37, we skip 38. 38 is about Judah, and I'm going to discuss that today. 37 and then 39 to 50 are all about Jacob's son, Joseph. But Jacob's story doesn't end until the end of the book because Jacob comes back, is rescued by his own son. He comes to Egypt, and that's where he's gathered to his fathers. So I believe at this point in the narrative, the narrative showcases something that all of us could easily fall prey to, and that is halfway obedience. Now remember, and I hope you hear me well, the story of Jacob's journey is so difficult to, to, to work through. Because we are, we are tempted to look at Jacob's life and we are tempted to compare righteousness, aren't we? And you remember what I said? Comparative righteousness is an illusion. Now, biblically, where do I get that statement from? The Bible says there are none righteous, not even one. All of us have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to our own way. That's why God had to raise up a seed, and that seed would be sent to bear the iniquities of us all. And we celebrated that at Christmas time, did we not? Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. He came in the living flesh to live a sinless life, to sacrifice himself in our place as the Lamb of the Old Testament. He would be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, to save his people from their sin, so that whosoever will may come to him and call upon him in, in mouth confession, repentance, and heart belief. You see, Jacob is the precursor. He's the seed from which the lineage of Jesus would come. But what we find here is Jacob and his life pattern showcases uh, the end. This is not the end of his story, but this is where we end Jacob's story for the year. And as we go into next year, I want us to remember these truths. The title of the message is this, God's Resolute Grace Despite Halfway Obedience. You see, my friend, when we enter tomorrow, we're going to step into a new year. Now, that's assuming we have a tomorrow. God doesn't promise us tomorrow, right? I was just reading, a, uh, I got a subscription to National Geographic Science Edition for Christmas. Um, I'm, a, I'm a nerd, yes, it's true. Uh, so I was, reading a, I was reading an article from that, um, from December's edition on heart problems. And did you know that statistically speaking, the vast majority of heart, heart attacks and strokes occur on December 24th, December 25th, and January 1st? That, the vast majority, more than 80% of the annual heart attacks and strokes occur on those three days. That got my attention, so I began to read it, and, you know, it actually boils down to, generally speaking, uh, overindulgence of alcohol, which weakens the, the blood and, and weakens the heart, and then causes uh, blood to stagnate in the heart, send up clots, and clots, of course, cause strokes and heart attacks and death. So that was the, that was the article scientific approach, uh, but it got my attention. Uh, my mom had a heart attack when she was my age, and... 
then died of a heart attack a year and a half ago. So I think about my cardiac condition on occasion, you know, probably not a, not a bad idea for me to, to do that. But as I was thinking about the heart of the message and thinking about the resolution of next year, we, we often come to New Year's resolutions, don't we? Usually they make the fitness centers really a lot of money and uh, <laughs> we usually go to play it against sports and try to buy the rustiest weights we, we can find because we know we can, we're probably, they're just going to stay rusty. But uh, we, we do those kind of things. Yesterday I went on a bike ride with my son. It'll probably be the first, and it was pro- I think it was the first bike ride that I went on in 2023. Now that wasn't, uh, that wasn't because I resolved to exercise more. It was literally because we moved twice and our bikes were in incredible disrepair and we literally spent the last week putting them back together and getting them ready. So we had to ride them right before the year ended. Doesn't mean I'm going to ride them every day next year, uh, although my son would probably like me to for my health sake. We resolve, don't we, to do things. But as we end 2023, I want us to end with the story of Jacob's halfway resolution. The mountaintop experience that we saw has led Jacob to Shechem. Shechem is not Bethel. We'll find Jacob eventually in Bethel, where he should have been to begin with. But what we find here, and by the way, they're only 20 miles apart, Bethel and Shechem. But we find Jacob reaps a whirlwind in Shechem. And so as we see God's resolute grace in our lives, let us remember that the story of Jacob is not about Jacob, but about our resolute God who is pursuing us with his grace tenaciously. And so as we step into the new year next year, let us remember we're all sinners saved by grace. Remember, comparative righteousness is an illusion. You and I are not more righteous than each other. When we begin to compare ourselves with ourselves, Paul says we're not wise. You see, when we truly trust Christ as Savior, we get righteousness imputed to us. He wraps us in a robe of righteousness that is not our own and does not belong to us. It does not come from inside of us. It comes externally. It is the righteousness of Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the Sovereign of the universe. And friends, when we begin to compare ourselves among ourselves, we face tremendous danger. So I don't, as we walk through the story of Jacob, it's, it, the temptation has been to say, well, did, was this decision right? Was this decision right? Did this person sin? Or, or was it because of this, the parents' problems, right? Remember, we all are people in desperate need of change. We all must go to God who alone can change us. And the Holy Spirit of God is the agent of change, and the Word of God is the tool of change. We must go to the agent of change with the tool of change and ask God to change us from the inside out. Our problems, we can't blame our problems on our circumstances, or our parents, or our grandparents, or our generational issues, or our genetics. We've got to go to the God who can change us spiritually from the inside out. And so as we look at the text this morning, we understand where we've been We see God's resolute grace despite halfway obedience. The theme of this passage or the section that we're going to go through today is halfway obedience brings chastening and consequences. And as we ask and answer this question, how does the narrative highlight God's resolute grace and the need for full obedience? I hope that in the two points that we have today, I hope that it will ring true 
that although God's grace is resolute, God wants our full obedience. So today, there's a, there's a, there's a tightrope that we're walking. We're walking the tightrope of, yes, I am a, a recipient of the lavish grace of God, and I must be thankful for the grace of God. But I must not see the grace of God and His abundant grace in my life as an excuse for halfway obedience. So as we enter into the new year, let us not enter in with a half-hearted willingness to serve God, but rather a heart that is full and ready to obey Him no matter what the cost. Because what we see in Jacob's life as he steps into Shechem, resolves his problems with Esau, we see that Shechem was a place of halfway obedience. And so what we're going to see today, as the text answers that question, how does the narrative highlight God's resolute grace and the need for full obedience, we're going to see that halfway obedience produces self-centered living. Halfway obedience produces self-centered living. And as I noted a minute ago, Jacob's faith soars when he prays to God for deliverance from his brother in chapter 32, verses 9 to 12. In fact, go ahead and now when I mention a passage in Genesis, just turn there, okay? Just turn there so your eyes are on the page and ready to note when I see. Genesis chapter 32, verse 9, then Jacob says to God, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of the truth which which you've shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me, the mother with the children. For I said to you, for you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so what we find here is in Genesis 32, a great soaring prayer that Jacob makes to God. And we find in verses 22 and the following, at the end of the chapter, we find God showing up. Now, we're told in Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, that this is indeed an angel of the Lord, or it could be a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus. And he is wrestling with Jacob all night. What is all night? Six hours? Seven hours? Greco-Roman wrestling, a time of fatigue and exhaustion, of sweat and strength, a show of strength. He's wrestling with Almighty God, and in the process, he can't overcome him, and, he, and he's overwhelmed, but he continues to, to pursue this. And then what happens? A supernatural God reaches out and touches his hip. And that's it. He's it's dislocated just by a touch. This is when Jacob realizes that he is wrestling with the Almighty. And so what we find is at this point of wrestling match with God, it's indeed a point in the narrative that summarizes Jacob's life parabolically, as a parable, as uh, R. Kent Hughes points out in his commentary, and I quote, Throughout the long narrative, Jacob's life has been characterized as a grasping struggle. Have you seen that in his life? Do you feel that in your own life? His life has been as a grasping struggle. Jacob had wrestled with his brother, chapter 25, verse 22, and then with his father in chapter 27, and then with his father-in-law in chapters 29 to 31, and now in chapter 32, he's wrestling with God. Jacob had always struggled with both man and God. You see, friends, God wants our full obedience, 
because He is resolute in His grace to pursue us, because He loves us, because He blesses us, and He even leads us home to glory despite our failures, we often miss out on His greatest blessing of all, the blessing that comes when we fully obey Him. Jacob is a doer. I can, I can relate to Jacob. I have to be doing something. Uh, we had a, a, a welcome surprise. Some visitors uh, came in on, I don't remember if it was Christmas Day. They all blend together now, or the day after Christmas. We also had a welcome visit. Somebody just showed up on Christmas Eve from our Bible study, thinking we still had Bible study. So he stayed at our house and celebrated Christmas Eve with our family till 10 o'clock. And then he went off on his own. It was great. But uh, we, I remember having a, a resolute visitor came in, and uh, my dad was there, and my dad was just busy all over the house. And he said to me, now, nah, Pastor, I, kn- I know where you get your work ethic from. Because dad was running around the house doing all kinds of stuff. He was just busy, busy, busy. And I, I can relate to that. I'm a doer. I, I can't, can't not be doing something. I have to be doing something. This is how Jacob is. Jacob is a doer. Doers get things done, but they often fail to fully trust God in the process. See, doers think, well, I can do that. I can do that. You know what? That problem's pretty big, but I'll, I'll just tackle it. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, Right? So I, I'll, t- I'll take a bite out of that one. I'll take a bite out of that one. I'll just keep going, right? Uh, so being a doer is not a problem unless, as a doer, you forget to ask God to partner with you in the doing. Unless you forget to yield to God's will and God's direction. Unless you sit in your doing and think, well, if I just do this, I just try harder here, if I just change my circumstances here, perhaps that will elicit God's blessing in my life. You see, doers often look horizontally when they should be looking vertically. It's true that Jacob's life was influenced by his parents' favoritism, a problem that he reproduces in spades. But his parents cannot be blamed for his partial trust in God here. His continued attempt to assist God in receiving the blessing and stopping short of full obedience when God called uh, him to do so, uh, Jacob was repeatedly blessed by God at Bethel and told to return there to live under God's full blessing. As we shall see, though, Jacob's tearing in Shechem has devastating consequences for his entire family. So we see halfway obedience produces self-centered living. Now, let's look at the text. Go to chapter 33. We know what happens in chapter 33. He reconciles with his brother. What leads into chapter 33 is uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob wrestling with God, getting a permanent disability, and Jacob realizing that it is God's strength in his weakness that perfects him. That reminds us of the Apostle Paul, does it not? who had a thorn in the flesh, and three times he petitioned God, God, would you please take away this thorn in my flesh? And God finally speaks to the Apostle Paul, and he says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul steps back and says, Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmity that the grace or the power of God might rest upon me. You see, God wrestling with Jacob and permanently disabling him is a way of showing Jacob, look, you need to trust me. You need to recognize as a doer that your weakness is what I want to to use, not your strength, not your ingenuity, not your stick-to-itiveness. No, I want to bless you. I want to be the doer in your life. Partner with me, and I will bless you. And so God brings Jacob to this point of humility, and it's a wonderful point. And if, if Jacob's success in chapter 33 had transferred 
fully to obedience, full obedience, I, I think we might have had a different story. So let's look. You say, well, pa- Pastor, I'm not sure I really understand what you're saying here. Well, let's, let's look. Um, verse 12 of 33. Esau says, they reconcile. Okay? They've reconciled together. But in verse 12, Esau says, let's take our journey. Let's go. I'll go before you. He say, hey, come home. Come back to Bethel. Come back to the place of blessing. Come back to see dad at home. Jacob says to him, well, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds are nursing with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. and I'll lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and see air. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with you. But he says, no, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed where? Not to Bethel, but to Succoth. He built himself a house. Doesn't sound like he's uh, meandering back home, is he? He built himself a house. He made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Shechem's not Bethel which is in the land of Canaan, where he came from Padanaram. And he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there, and he called it El Elohi Israel. Now, this is just a factual statement. He builds an altar, not in Bethel, but in Shechem. He declares that he is trusting in the God who is authoritative, absolute, and powerful, But is he really fully trusting? Now, what happens in Shechem? Look at chapter 34, verse 1. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Not to be overly crass here, but that Hebrew word is as strong as it could possibly be. He literally raped her. And it says now, his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman who spoke kindly of the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, give me this young woman his wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his his livestock in the field. So he held his peace until they came. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, goes out to speak with him. Uh, So his response is a, a silent one. His response here in the text is not the response that a father would probably likely have, should have. In fact, we've seen Jacob um, at this point. He's in Shechem. Now, the rest of the story is detailed. I don't have time to read through it all. But they make a deal because dad isn't working. Dad isn't going to do anything about this. So her brothers decide... Well, let's, um, let's deceive them into thinking that they can have a marriage arrangement with our daughter, but they themselves need to uh, become like us. They need to be like the people of God and take the sign of the Israelite covenant, the sign of Abraham, the sign of circumcision. Uh, now, we're all adults in here, and I'm not going to explain what circumcision is. Um, if you're a teenager or in, in the household, you can ask your parents. But it, it is a physical uh, activity for male, the male children in the family, and circumcision would cause pain and would, would keep the men off their feet for a couple of days. And so this was a ploy for revenge, not an opportunity 
for ingratiating themselves with the people. So what we find is Simeon and Levi step in after these men have all agreed, and of course the men of the city don't have pure motives either. If you read the story, they say, hey, won't we take all of their flocks and all of their wealth if we marry into their families? All of their wealth will become ours. Let's do a deal with Jacob and his sons. And so Simeon and Levi come in while everybody is down, and they literally slaughter every single man in the city. They slaughter them mercilessly, hand-to-hand, with a sword. This is, the, the Bible's not holding anything back. This is as graphic as it gets. It's in-your-face murder and violence. Where does this occur? Shechem. I want you to flip over to the next page. Now, chapter 35, then, is a summary of Jacob's final resting, where he finally gets back to Bethel. Okay? So let's look at it. Then God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the place of, face of Esau, your brother. Jacob says to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by where? Shechem. You see, halfway obedience has produced self-centered Uh, self-centered living in Jacob's life. Self-centered living can be motivated by materialism. Jacob has accrued incredible wealth. He's accrued incredible status. Why does he have these idols in his home after all? Because didn't he just set up an altar uh, to the God who is almighty and all-powerful? But he's allowed self-centered indulgence. He's allowed self-centered living to shape his thinking and materialism has become a motivation. Now, as we go through the rest of the story, um, we find that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies and they bury her. We also find that God appears to Jacob uh, when he came from Padanaram, blessed him. God said, your name is Jacob. Uh, your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel, we know this story, right? This is the story of his, the night of his wrestling with God. Then we see the death of Rachel in verses 16 and following. So Rachel doesn't make it all the way to Bethel. She gets buried in uh, Bethlehem, okay? But, but she gets buried after giving birth. So this is, this is the entrance of Benjamin, the 12th son. Uh, and then we find a summary. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. This is verse 22 and following. Um, and we find the summary of his life. And then we find Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Uh, now the days of Isaac were 128 or 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died. Okay, so that's chapter 35. That is a full summary of Jacob finally making it from Shechem to say, saying goodbye to his dad and presumably going to Bethel. Then chapter 36 interrupts the narrative and gives us the history of Esau. We're not going to read that today, but the history of Esau, we find that Esau ended up with three wives. One of them was an Ishmaelite. It was Ishmael's daughter. So we have Ishmael, the not promised seed 
of Abraham, and Esau, the not promised seed of Isaac, intermarrying and the families blending. And so you read the list of Esau's descendants, and they read like a list of ancient and modern enemies of Israel. You even have Amalek showing up, and Amalek, we are later told um, in, in the rest of the Pentateuch, Amalek became the one who was the progenitor of giants in the land, six-fingered people like uh, Goliath, who settled in the land of Philistia, uh, became, they, they're named the Philistines, but they are descendants of Amalek, okay? So this, this list of, of princes of Esau uh, is a long list of Israel's enemies, then we have chapter um, 37. So look at chapter 37. And here we have Jacob. Okay? I'm not going to preach on Jacob yet. In fact, I'm going to spend the next eight weeks preaching on Jacob. We're going to finish our series through Genesis. Preach, excuse me. I keep saying the wrong thing. Joseph. Joseph. I'm going to be preaching on Joseph. Okay? But look at chapter 37. Now, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Uh, Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report to them, his father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. He made him a tunic of many colors, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, verses 5 and following, Joseph has a dream. He dreams that his brothers are going to bow down to him and worship him. He, uh, and so um, he tells these, there are actually two different dreams. Uh, he tells this to his father and to his brothers, and his uh, brothers envy him, and his father kept the matter in his mind. Verse 11. Now look at verse 12. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock where? In Shechem. So remember what I said about chapter 35? Chapter 35 is a summary of Jacob's concluding journey. But where is chapter 37 taking place? Shechem. Where is chapter 34 taking place with Dinah's rape and the violent murder of everybody in the city of Shechem? Shechem. Okay? Now, what we find here is all of this trauma and trouble. If we were, if we were to read the rest of chapter 37, we're going to find Jacob, Jacob's sons who have been brought up in this materialistically motivated, self-centered household with half, uh, half obedience here in, the, in the, these few years of transition before Jacob fully submits and fully surrenders and fully makes his way to Bethel. We find them fighting and squabbling amongst themselves. We find them envious of their brother. They beat up Joseph. They throw him in a pit. It's only Reuben that saves his life from certain death, and Reuben is the firstborn of Leah. It's, only, it's actually the firstborn altogether. It's only Reuben that saves him from death. And then it's Judah that steps in. Judah is the fourthborn who's promised the king, remember, of the lineage of Jesus. Judah is the guy. Judah's the one who steps in and says, hey, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. They're our cousins anyway. They're on their way down to Egypt. We'll sell him as a slave. So Reuben steps in and stops him from being murdered by the rest of his brothers. Judah says, hey, let's do the, the next best thing. We can't kill him. Let's sell him as a slave. All of this happens where? Shechem. Now, look at chapter 38. This is, again, uh, this is as unfamily friendly as possible. You know, if this were a movie, 
we would have to censor it. Chapter 34 would have to be censored. Chapter 38 would also have to be censored. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but we, we find here, and it came to pass that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain who? Canaanite. Now, what, what were they told? Don't intermarry with the Canaanites. What happened to Esau? He was a, he was a stink to his parents because he married the, the residents of the land. But Judah goes off and he marries a Canaanite whose name was Shua. He marries her. He goes into her. He you know, has sexual relations. She conceives and he, she bears him three sons. All three sons, surprise, surprise, do evil in the sight of the Lord and die. Now, the first one dies because of his, his wickedness. The second one is told, go in and, and raise up a child to your brother, because that was, that was the cultural way to pass on the firstborn rights. He refuses to do so. Uh, uh, you'll have to read the story for yourselves and teenagers. Talk to your parents about it. He refuses to do so. And God kills him. And then the thirdborn son is supposed to become her husband, but he sends her back to her father's house and tells her to dress like a widow for the rest of your life, and eventually I'll give you my son. And he never does. She takes matters into her own hands. She exchanges her clothes, her widow garments, for uh, prostitute garments, and essentially deceives Jacob, or excuse me, Judah, into fathering a child by her. It doesn't get any worse than this. And all this happens in the region of Shechem. Now we get back to 39, and we get back to the story of Joseph. All right, so let's go backward again. So chapters 34, obviously before chapter 35, but chapter 36 is a summary of Esau. Chapter 37 occurs, and chapter 38 occurs all during the time that Jacob is at Shechem. Jacob was a man who had halfway obedience at this point in his life. Again, like I said, he ends well, so I'm trying not to throw him under the bus, but this is what the narrative shows us. Halfway obedience produces self-centered living. What does self-centered living look like? In his household, it looked like materialistic motivation. Throughout Jacob's service with Laban, though his wages were changed, he was also working hard to become wealthy despite Laban's deceit. God was always going to bless him behind the scenes, would have done so without Jacob's ingenuity. In fact, we were told in chapter 31 that God did bless him. He is the one who gave him all his wealth. Jacob should have focused more on caring for his family rather than producing a posterity. Also, personal recognition was a motivator. If the, baby was taught, if the baby wars taught us anything about Jacob, his home was typified by personal ambition and name recognition. As the head of his home, he fostered the atmosphere that led his wives and their handmaidens to bargain for his affections. Remember the Mandrake story? They're selling a night with Jacob over a bunch of mandrakes. We see in the story of chapter 34 that Jacob's care for his sons and posterity apparently didn't include care for his daughter, who was left to fend for herself. In fact, go back to chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Now, uh, the Hebrew here is a little bit, it's a little bit hard on Dinah in the sense that it, this was something, it's, it seems as if she did this, uh, it was a little bit of impropriety here. 
And of course, we know historically and culturally from studying the culture, she was a, a single, unwed, un, unbetrothed woman. She should have had an escort with her. After all, she had 11 brothers at this point. But she wants to see the women of the town, and she sort of she sneaks out. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not at all saying that what happened to her is her fault. What I'm saying is what happened to her is her, her dad's fault. Her dad didn't say, hey, I love you, honey. I promise I will, find, I will help you with God's help prayerfully find the right path for your life. And in fact, we find Jacob's response as one of silence and his, her brother's response as one of violence. This household is so dysfunctional at this point. He's looking for personal recognition so much so that he overlooks his own daughter. Doesn't even know where she is. Doesn't, doesn't send out someone to escort her. Doesn't think about her personal care or her personal needs. So consumed with personal recognition. What we see here is a sad reality. Halfway obedience. Halfway obedience has produced self-centered living in Jacob's life. At this point of his life. There's a final thing that we'll see. Halfway obedience has devastating familial consequences. Now, we've talked about a lot of them, and I needed, to sh- I needed to share those to get to the final principles this morning. Finally, we see that halfway obedience has devastating familial consequences. And so what are some of them? Favoritism that leads to pain and strife. Favoritism that leads to pain and strife. We saw Jacob's favoritism apparently overlooking his only daughter there, Dinah. While the text implies her escape from the home was unchaperoned, it was not her fault that she was brutally raped. Sadly, his response is equally devastating. His silence led to disturbing violence by his two sons. Favoritism that leads to pain and strife. And that favoritism, by the way, is what he experienced in his own home, and he repeated it. Friends, we have to remember we must, by the aid and help of God, break the chains of sin and the habits of sin that have been sown in our lives. You see, we have sin from within, but that sin within affects how we live on the outside, and we need to yield that to the Holy Spirit and ask God's incredible grace. Because remember, what what was the title of the, the message to begin with? God's resolute grace, despite halfway obedience. I know this has been a heavy-hitting thought, and I know it sounds like I'm throwing Jacob under the bus. I'm just showing you where he is at this point in his life. He has shown incredible favoritism that leads to pain and strife because halfway obedience has devastating familial consequences. Final final sub-point, and I'm going to move to a conclusion and some main points tonight, today, whatever time it is. Self-centered living leads, uh, that leads, uh, I'm sorry, that produces violence. Scratch out leads. Self-centered living that produces violence. Jacob's kids were violent kids. Not only do they come in and murder an entire city, but they beat up, sell, and leave for dead their own brother. The strife that is in this family. The birth order of Dinah's four full brothers was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and it was the middle two who affected the massacre that we saw. As to why Simeon and Levi did all the killing, we can only speculate, right? One commentator said, said this, we do know that Reuben, the oldest, was the least murderous of the brothers. I told you uh, why he didn't want them to kill Judah or uh, Joseph. But Judah's lack of participation remains a mystery. It could be that he had moved away at this point. Um, 
but was so uh, Reuben and Bilhah's affair in any event except Reuben. It was Dinah's two oldest big brothers who exacted the revenge. The Bible does not spare its readers the awful truth. These were two cold and calculating murderers. The third day following the crude operation would be the worst and most painful, and they, they go in on the third day and they slaughter them. This is a shocking truth, but it was just as shocking to the ancient readers as it is to our modern eyes and ears. The ancient law, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, has been trampled by Simeon and Levi. There's been no equity here, only exponential revenge. If they had a problem with the rapist, they, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, would have been against the rapist. But they don't just go after him, they go after him, his brother, his father, and every single man in the city. We don't know how big the city is, but we're talking at least dozens of people. The brothers' actions offended every convention. And then the remaining brothers swooped in like vultures descending on the lifeless corpses, and they loot the city. They take all of the, the women and children as spoils of war, as if they had gone to war with these people. They take their flocks, their herds, and their donkeys, and whatever was in the city, all of their wealth, their little ones, their wives, and their houses, and their land, and they capture them for themselves. Self-centered living produces violence. Self-centered living produces uh, strife and pain. Self-centered living produces materialism and materialistic values. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Later on, we find uh, Jacob pronouncing an anti-blessing on them at the end of the book. He says, Their weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. My oh, oh, my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. It will divide them. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Genesis 49, 5-7. And they are, right? Simeon is, is a tribe that gets scattered. Levi doesn't have any land ownership. They ended up all over the nation of Israel, the Levites. So no one escaped censure on that infamous day in Shechem. No one looked good, not even one. Doesn't that remind us of what Paul says in Romans 3.10? There are none righteous, not even one. And so here's a couple of principles we step away. Now, again, I want to remember, yes, this is a, this is a section of Jacob's life that's not a pretty one. Jacob's life ends far better than this. I personally believe that God has been chastening him, gets his attention, just like he, he cripples him and brings him to a point of weakness so that he can rely on God. He does this again when Joseph is stolen. We'll find this later. He thinks Joseph is murdered, remember? And this happens again when his brothers refuse to go back to Egypt unless Benjamin is taken to Egypt. And he's told I've been bereaved of one son, now you're going to bereave me of another, right? So Jacob becomes a humble man at the end of his life, okay? But remember, the story is not necessarily, comparative righteousness is an illusion, so I'm not trying to compare here, I'm just showcasing that Jacob should not have been in Shechem. He should have continued to go where God said go, but instead he decided, hey, I'll just partially obey. I'm only 20 miles away. I can visit Bethel anytime. And how true is that to us at times when God says, this is my will for you. When Paul told the Thessalonians that you abstain from fornication. This is my will for you. Even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We live in a world of fornicators. We have a society that pushes fornication. That's any sex outside of marriage. It's graphic everywhere around us. It's pushed in every TV show that, that, that's on Netflix or Hulu or stream on Disney+. Plus. We drink it like water in our society. And you want to know what God's will for you is? It's full obedience in that. Young person, save yourself for the spouse that has, God has for you. You'll never be sorry. You'll never be sorry to obey God. Because halfway obedience will lead to destruction in your life. Adult, that, that justification of, well, I've kind of gone this, I've kind of obeyed God, isn't it enough to stop here? We've got to be so careful to obey God fully, to follow God truly. Let's not be like the doers of this world who are constantly trying to uh, work their circumstances. Let's sit back and let God direct us instead of us having to assist God along the, the way. Jacob's sore that had turned into a slide when he deceived Esau as his intent to return to Canaan. Then he dallied in Succoth and finally settled 20 miles short of Bethel and Shechem in willful halfway obedience. Here there is a pious act of building an altar and naming it after God could not disguise the fact of his disobedience. The old Jacob was in full force. He was morally weak, unwilling to pay the cost of right actions, untrusting of God and unmindful of the welfare of his children and the future of his people. The cost of Jacob's turpitude was immense, as chapter 34 records, rape, degeneration, treachery, genocide. Yet in all of this, a fierce grace was at work. In Shechem, in the event we are about to consider, or we've considered now, God allowed Jacob to experience the appalling weight of his sinfulness so he would return to his call. Divine grace will triumph despite human sin. Fierce, fiery grace of God will always triumph in our lives. Jacob's sole hope and our only hope lay in the ultimate son of Jacob, the ultimate Israel, Jesus Christ, the Savior, who bore the wrath of God for our sin, turning it away from all who believe. There for me the Savior stands, Charles Wesley would write, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love, I know, I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me still. Finally, the future would feature the outworking of the terrible fruit of his favoritism when the hatred of favored Joseph by Leah's sons would perpetrate his sale to Egypt. The sky had fallen on Jacob, but through it all was a fierce, loyal grace of God. Jacob could see himself for what he was. Again, Charles Wesley's famous words, I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. Now the withering grace of God would spur Jacob on to Bethel. Sovereign grace would have its way. How absurd Jacob had been. How absurd we all are when we resist the Lord's will. How tragic the consequences. And the final stanzas of Charles Wesley's uh, poem, Depths of Mercy, written in 1740. Now incline me to repent. Let me now my sins lament. Now my a foul revolt deplore. Weep, believe, and sin no more. You see, some principles to derive in conclusion today. Materialistic living leads to a false sense of security. 
Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 reminds us that it would be better to have a crust of bread. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not right. That's Proverbs. Let me just turn to it. Jeremiah 23, 9, 23 says this. You don't want to, I don't want to misquote it. Besides, you would catch it and tell me later, hey, pastor, you got the wrong verse, which I'm thankful for. It says this. Speak, thus says the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as ref... Nope, that's not right. I wrote down the wrong reference, guys. Oh, here we go. Yes. Uh, verse 23. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. You see, when we delight in the Lord, we have true security. Favoritism and materialism, uh, materialistic living leads to strife in the home. Didn't we see this in spades in Jacob's life while he was in Shechem? Look at Proverbs 17.1. Proverbs 17.1. This is my last slide, by the way, just so you know. Proverbs 17.1. Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. Um, another, another translation, blah, you know what I'm trying to say. Not the New King James says, uh, better is a dry crust of bread with quietness or peace than a house full of feasting that has strife. You see, favoritism and materialism abounded in Jacob's household in Shechem. And yet, what else abounded? Strife, disunity, violence, pain, and suffering. When we humble ourselves in obedience to God, he exalts us. You see, Jacob was looking for a name. His household, he developed a, a reputation in the household for uh, joshing for uh, recognition and fame. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter um, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be sub submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. You see, Jacob would be exalted in due time. Jacob's son Joseph would literally save the world from certain destruction and famine. And J Jacob's son Joseph would stand before his brothers and his father weeping and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Jacob is restored at the end of his days. Jacob's son does understand God's love and truth. And despite the favoritism that was shown in the house, when Jacob humbled himself in obedience, went to Bethel, reconciled with his father and his brother, uh, Joseph saw in his father the right response Humble yourselves in obedience to God. And then finally, when we recognize ourselves as weak, God can do his mighty work in our lives. And I already quoted 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my weaknesses so that the power of God or the grace of God could rest upon me. So as we step into 2024, I wonder what kind of 
follower of Jesus will you be? Remember I opened up with Luke 15 and 16. Will you count the cost of discipleship? Will you win the test of people? Do you love God more than you love father, mother? Will you count the cost of possessions? Will you pass the test of possessions? Will you, do you love God more than houses or lands, things? And ultimately, will you pass the test of persecution? That is in Luke chapter 16. Chapter, or in 2024, we will have a theme of one hope, one calling. Is your hope truly in God? Will you be a doer like Jacob, but a doer who partners with God? A doer who humbles himself before God and obeys the known quotes, the known will of God. I just quoted one from 1 Thessalonians 5. This is God's will in Christ Jesus concerning you, even your sanctification, that you avoid fornication. But there are many clearly stated commands in Scripture. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another and you keep my commandments. Will you determine in 2024 not to make 2024 a year of halfway obedience, but a year of full obedience? Maybe you're a young person in this room and you've seen in your own life a tendency to yield to the materialism and the philosophy of the world around you. The Bible says that we shouldn't grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not faint. Don't lose heart, young person. Give your life to God. You'll never regret it. Don't waste your life. Don't obey halfway. Obey full. Obey with a full heart of gratitude to the Lord. Humble yourself. Avoid materialism. Avoid favoritism. Recognize yourself as weak and give yourself to the mighty hand of God who can make a trophy of grace out of your sloppy, messy life just like the rest of us. Let's pray. Father, we love you.